Tired of blogs? <laughs> Me too. Moby Lives Radio starts now. From the intergalactic headquarters of Melville House Publishing in Hoboken, New Jersey, aka the left bank of New York City, it's Moby Lives Radio. Greetings, Earthlings. It's Saturday, the 4th of February, 2006. I'm Dennis Johnson. Is James Fry fatigue making publishing people drop their defenses and letting the real story emerge? On today's show, we'll talk with the New York Observer's publishing reporter, Sheila Colhatkar, about what she's hearing from publishing insiders and about her interview of Nan Talese, in which Talese says she was set up by Oprah Winfrey last week. And earlier this week, the Oscar nominations were announced. We'll talk to David Kippen, the Director of Literature at the National Endowment of the Arts and author of a new Melville House book about screenwriting, about the many movies among the nominees this year that were adapted from books. And we'll discuss the fine art of turning a book into a movie. But first, here's a look at some news from the book world. Well, the James Fry story continued to dominate talk in the publishing world this week. We got off to a slow start for a couple of days as people sit around realizing that, whoa, Oprah Winfrey has a mean streak and she's still maybe a little pissed off at the book industry for the whole Jonathan Franzen thing. But then James Fry finished his much-anticipated note to readers for insertion in new editions of A Million Little Pieces and his publisher, Doubleday, helpfully put it up on their website immediately. Quote, I believe, and I understand that others strongly disagree, that memoir allows the writer to work from memory instead of from a strict journalistic or historical standard, he wrote. He continued, It's about impression and feeling, about individual recollection. This memoir is a combination of facts about my life and certain embellishments. Close quote. In other words, well, he still doesn't get it. And the pity factor seeping in after Oprah's vicious beating of him on national airwaves evaporated. And with that, all the brave souls making a fortune off James Fry came out of the woodwork at long last to explain their side of the story. First, his agent, Cassie Evashevsky, revealed that well, she was no longer his agent. She dumped him the previous week, she told Publishers Weekly editor Sarah Nelson, all... Though, as Michael Cater pointed out in Publisher's Lunch, this didn't mean that Evershevsky's agency, the Brillstein Gray Agency of Hollywood, didn't get to keep their cut of James Fry's royalties, which Cater guessed was about half a million dollars or so. Cater also suggested it might be nice to donate a chunk of that money to some rehab therapy groups, as James Fry, uh, James Fry says he's been doing. Uh, but the agency, like the publisher, hasn't committed to anything quite that insane. And like Evashevsky, uh, Fry's acquiring editor of the book, Sean McDonald, finally spoke out as well after weeks of silence, albeit only in an extremely brief email to a limited number of journalists. 
Like Ebeshevsky, McDonald said he was as surprised as everyone else to learn about the Whoppers in James Fry's book, and he said he had nothing to do with it being turned from a novel to a memoir either. Finally, the bravest soul of all, Nantales, fresh off her whopping by Oprah Winfrey, went back in the ring to tell Sheila Kolhatkar that Oprah had set her up, luring her onto the show by telling her it was going to be about something else before surprising her with a solid right to the jaw. We'll have more on that later in the show when we talk to Sheila Kolhatkar. Well, at least James Fry didn't make up his name, which is more than can be said about some memoir writers. The various representatives of the writer calling himself Nazdish also broke their ongoing silence this week long enough to say they had nothing more to do with the writer anyway. In the wake of the revelations by the LA Weekly last week that Nazdish's name and his persona as a Navajo Indian were completely fabricated, and that the author was actually a writer of pornography named Tim Barris, Hillel Atali reports in an AP Wire story that Ballantine, which published the most recent two memoirs by Nazdish Barris, said it would stop shipping the book and would happily accept returns of the book from booksellers. Spokesman for Ballantine said the company had broken off communications with Barris two years ago, although not because of questions having to do with his manuscript. They wouldn't say why they'd done it, though, and that was that. Meanwhile, writer Sherman Alexie filed a livid piece with Time Magazine, Time Magazine last week, claiming he had told the publisher of Nazdish's first memoir that he thought the book had been plagiarized from his own work. But Sherman Alexie says he was ignored. And while we're on a roll, the other totally fake writer in the news recently, J.T. Leroy, you know, the writer that claimed to be suffering from AIDS and to be incommunicado often because he was either having difficulties with his transgender operation or he was helping children with AIDS. Well, J.T. Leroy was well known to be a fake for several years, or at least so said photographer Mary Ellen Mark, who shot Leroy for a Vanity Fair layout two years ago. Mark says there were certain giveaways that he was a she. No Adam's apple, for example, she said. Mark apparently didn't tell her employers at Vanity Fair, however, quote, I just looked at her as someone who was really cooperative, she told Daryl Lang at the book standard. So, uh, okay, how crazy is it in that place where art meets commerce in the realm of conglomerate capitalism? Well, this week, rumors circulated that W.H. Smith, the biggest bookseller in the U.K., which has been in the news lately because it's been trying to take over the UK's second biggest bookseller, Otakers, was itself the target of a takeover. A report from AFX News out of London says the rumor is that Permira Group, the Permira Group is after the conglomerate that runs WH Smith. That conglomerate is called the HMV Group. Both companies refused to comment, but others speculated that the rumors were false because the tiny island nation would sink under the weight of such a large conglomeration. And finally, children's book publisher Scholastic was hit with a lawsuit this week by a couple in Seattle, charging Scholastic with duping them into purchasing books via the process known as negative option billing in its book clubs. That is, they send you a book unless uh, you have told them not to. 
book you haven't ordered unless you've told them not to get it. In this case, the couple says when they refused to pay for books they hadn't ordered but the company had sent anyway, Scholastic threatened to ruin their credit and harass them with phone calls. According to a PW Daily report, the lawyer for the Seattle couple says Scholastic, quote, plays on parents' desire to help their children academically by hitting parents with an unsolicited barrage of books and products while holding out their hand demanding payment, close quote. The attorneys for the couple say they'll try to turn the suit into a class action lawsuit. Scholastic denied the charges. And that's it for the news from the publishing world this week. I'm Dennis Johnson. It's Saturday, February 4th, and here's a look at the week ahead in literary history. Sunday is February 5th, and on that day in 1914, beat novelist William Burroughs was born in Missouri. Burroughs had studied English at Harvard University and medicine in Vienna before serving in the Second World War. He was discharged as unfit in 1942. His book, The Naked Lunch, a pastiche of stream of consciousness, hallucinogenic episodes, violence and sex, became his most famous novel. And he himself became something of an icon in his later life, doing ads for Nike and cameo appearances in the movies before he died in 1997. On February 6th, that's this Monday, in 1857, Melville House author Fyodor Dostoevsky author of Crime and Punishment, The Brothers Karamazov, and Melville House's own The Eternal Husband, married Maria Dmitrievna in Siberia, where he was doing time for plotting against the Tsar. Tuesday is February 7th, and on that day in 1898, French writer Emile Zola was put on trial for his newspaper editorial, J'accuse, in which he attacked the French army over the Dreyfus Affair. Convicted and sentenced to one year's imprisonment, he fled France for England. Shortly after Dreyfus's pardon, Zola returned to France where he died in 1902. Wednesday is February 8th, which is the birthday of the father of science fiction, Jules Verne, born in France in 1828. The author of Around the World in 80 Days and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea began his career as an opera librettist before turning to fantasies based on the contemporary advances in science and technology. And Friday is February 9th, the birthday of Irish playwright and novelist Brendan Behan, born in 1923 in Dublin. A revolutionary in his youth at age 16, Behan was arrested in Liverpool with a suitcase full of high explosives. His novel, Borstal Boy, is the autobiographical record of that day throughout his imprisonment, his life in reform school, and his eventual release. Behan memorably described himself as a drinker with a writing problem, and he died of alcoholism at the age of 46. And February, excuse me, and Friday is February 10th. And February 10th is novelist and poet Boston, Boris Pasternak's birthday. Pasternak is best known for his epic novel, Dr. Zhivago which his countryman, Vladimir Nabokov, dismissed as a potboiler 
recommending Pasternak's poetry instead. A very happy birthday to one and all. I'm Valerie Marians, and that's this week in literary history. I know my chicken. You got to know you are chicken. This is Mark Thwaite, the managing editor of ReadySteadyBook.com and UK correspondent for Moby Lives Radio. A couple of stories from the markets and HMV Otica's takeover submissions have been made public. The lengthy documents addressing the central issues on the proposed merger between Waterstones and Otica's, including actually HMV expanding on the subjective market definition of books, um, have gone up onto the Competition Commission website. WH Smiths are staying silent on rumours of a possible takeover of their company. Um, one of the other big book sales in the UK, they've been performing very well recently, um, and they were planning to open more standalone bookstores in UK airports after trial stores performed so well. Waterstones, I've just mentioned, um, have widely advertised a half-price campaign on some of the Richard and Judy titles. Now, the Richard and Judy books I've mentioned to you before in this slot. Richard and Judy, a TV couple who um, push about 10 books a season that do extremely well. And so one, one wonders why Watsons have decided to advertise these titles at half price, since they're going to fly through the door anyway. And proof it would seem that um, the book trade is absolutely bonkers. The Guardian newspaper reported that the Queen's scribe and calligrapher, Donald Jackson, is to produce the first handwritten Bible since the invention of the printing press. Mr Jackson, based in Monmouthshire in Wales, is five years into an eight-year £2 million project commissioned by Benedictine monks from the United States. Mr. Jackson, a scribe to the Crown Office since 1964, and who knew the Queen had to scribe, uses um, hand-carved goose quills to write on calfskin parchment, and the finished pages are gilded with 24-carat gold leaf and bound in leather and Welsh oak. And Mr. Jackson um, has completed four out of seven of the volumes. Examples are on show at the Victorian Albert Museum in London. Uh, and another story about the Queen, I don't normally mention the Queen, so there we go. Um, but the Queen is having a huge birthday party to celebrate her 80th birthday on June the 25th. And she's celebrating that party with 2,000 children, and 1,000 of their parents or guardians, at a party in the grounds of Buckingham Palace. Um, and the guests will mingle with characters from important children's literature. Um, a show will feature Mary Poppins, The White Rabbit, Captain Hook, um, tickets are available via a national ballot here in the UK and children are invited to apply through the um, BBC's CBBC website. Independent publisher Serpent's Tale are to publish more erotica. After the success of The Sexual Life of Catherine M by French art critic Catherine Millet, Serpent's Tale, probably best known for publishing Nobel laureate Kenzaburu Owe and the Austrian winner from the other year, Elfriede Jelinek, have decided that publishing more erotica is the way forward for their business. Um, the imprint's founder, Peter Erton, said, You can't survive as a publishing house on literary fiction. All publishing houses have to have their own Harry Potter. They have to have something that pays for the other books. The first th year that they published Catherine M, it probably accounted, said Erton, for a third of their turnover, as did 100 Strokes of the Brush by Melissa P. These erotic um, novels then bankrolling Serpent's Tale so it can go forward with its um, publishing of literary fiction. It reminds one of the heyday of Olympia Press. 
I'll close this week with a few stories that are linked together in my mind. British libraries are to receive £80 million worth of lottery money, but they will not be able to spend the money on books. The big lottery fund has decided this very large um, sum of money should be spent on libraries, but that the libraries need to focus on community learning. I'm not entirely sure what community learning is, but I would have thought spending the money on books would have been the best way to promote community learning. Now this is in the same week that the Department for Education have said that up to 16 million adults in the UK, and there's about 60 million um, people in the UK, nearly half the workforce are holding down jobs despite having the reading and writing skills expected of children leaving primary school. At the same time, 50 libraries in the UK face closure as councils balance their books. Around 50 libraries in at least six different counties are facing possible closure in the coming months, uh, most are in small and sometimes isolated communities. And the Culture Minister in the UK, David Lammy, is writing to every council urging them not to close libraries as part of its budget measures. So there's money about, £80 million from the big lottery fund, but this doesn't seem to be able to, um, or doesn't look like it's going to prevent the closure of around 50 libraries, and at the same time the government is complaining about the fact that 16 million adults have extremely bad literacy skills. I'm wondering if maybe they can join up the dots. Anyway, it's been good to speak to you all, and this is Mark Thwaite, the managing editor of ReadySteadyBook.com, and I'll speak to you again next week. Bye-bye now. have Sheila Kolhatkar on the phone. Sheila is a reporter at the New York Observer, the publishing reporter for the New York Observer. Sheila, welcome to Moby Liz Radio. Thanks for having me. I want to talk to you about this week's cover story that you wrote wherein you spoke to Nan Talais as uh, part of continuing coverage of the story that won't die, which is the James Fry story. Nan Talais tells you that she was sandbagged. Um, by Oprah Winfrey on the now infamous episode of Oprah's show where she scolded uh, Mr. Fry and then scolded uh, the publishing industry. What exactly did Nan Talais say happened? Well, I think she was under the impression that she was going to be going on a show to discuss something very general, truth in America, sort of the intellectual side of the whole debate. And mm -hmm. she'd been told that Frank Rich and Richard Cohen would be joining her, and she knows both of them. I think they're sort of uh, acquaintances, friendly mm -hmm. acquaintances. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until she was about to, you know, sort of walk onto the set to begin the show, which was taped live, which is sort of an unusual thing for Oprah to do, apparently, mm -hmm. um, that she was informed 
that there was actually going to be, you know, a return to the James Fry story. Did she know that Fry was going to be there, sitting next to her, before she got there? I believe she did. I, I think it was more a matter of the tenor of the show, mm-hmm. uh, you know, being different, being much, you know, more sort of aggressive mm-hmm. and inquisitive than she'd expected. And I think they did a lot of coaxing to convince her to come on. So mm-hmm. uh, I can imagine they they said some reassuring things to her to persuade her to do it. So she had no, I mean, it seems a little far-fetched. I, I know that when everybody in my office heard the day before that uh, Fry and his publisher, Talese, were going to be on the show, we thought, wow, um, that's going to get ugly. And yet she doesn't seem to have quite believed that. Uh, well, that's a fair question. And, uh, you know, I didn't press her too much on that subject. Mm-hmm. I don't think TV is her medium of choice, I would say that. Mm-hmm. So um, she's, you know, she's not the slickest television performer. I mean, she's much more used to being behind the scenes and working with her authors. And um, so it's possible she really wasn't expecting, you know, yeah. what happened. Yeah. And it, would you characterize her now as being angry or... How would how would you characterize what she's feeling now? Well, it's uh, you know it's hard to say. I mean, I think she I think she was upset about what happened, the aggression she, you know Oprah was showing. Uh, you think you, you, did she think that she bore up well under Oprah's? Uh, Oprah was 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 very aggressive, wasn't she? She was very tough. Yeah, Oprah really had a point at first. You know, I think it was good that Oprah kind of addressed all this, mm-hmm. but then uh, Oprah seemed to go a little you know, overboard with mm-hmm. her sort of attacks mm-hmm. on both, you know, Fry and Nan. And, mm-hmm. um, I mean, my sense from speaking with Nan is that she, you know, considering the sort of strange pretenses under which she was brought to the show and the fact that she was, you know, really not quite prepared for Oprah's line of questioning, I think mm-hmm. she mm-hmm. thinks she probably did hold up okay. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, she didn't necessarily do the best job she could have done sort of defending the publishing industries you know, role in the yes. whole debacle. So. Well, I think her surprise was certainly was certainly evident and genuine. Now, you've talked to a lot of others in publishing uh, about this story uh, since that that Oprah episode. What are you hearing from other people? Do they think that uh, Nantales did a, did a good job representing it? Do they think that she was unfairly treated? How how is the uh, the industry responding to that Oprah scolding behind the scenes? Well, I think there was a lot of sympathetic pain on her behalf. I heard a lot of people say, you know, that it almost could have been them, you know, with a memoir that mm-hmm. they could have had slipped through. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of sympathy and, um, you know, kind of concern about how she was doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, people were also feeling very defensive in a way of mm-hmm. the sort of publishing industry position, which really until very recently has been that they really, you know, they don't do anything wrong by not fact-checking books. Mm -hmm. And I heard a lot of people say that it's important that they continue to sort of defend that position because it's just unrealistic for them to, you know, uh, guarantee the factual accuracy of everything they publish. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm sure uh, I can only speak for my office, but I, I, I think you mentioned in your article that you encountered a lot of people thinking that it was awfully hypocritical of... Of, of Oprah and the others commenting on the story to, to keep coming back to the fact-checking as a, as a kind of a core issue here? Well, it's a bit of a distraction from what I think is the, 
you know, sort of broader issue, which is just what, you know, what are the problems with the publishing model, the big commercial publishing industry model, mm -hmm. you know, and the way it is right now. Mm -hmm. To just fixate on fact-checking seems a little simplistic, and uh, a lot of people seem to feel that, you know, really reputable magazines have been, you know, duped by dishonest authors, even, you know, even if they'd been fact-checked. Mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, newspapers don't have fact-checkers either, and uh, Oprah seemed to disregard her own fact-checkers, who had talked to the Hazelton Clinic people before the show, but she she decided to ignore their warnings. Um, but you, you talk about bringing it back to a, a conglomerate publishing story. Uh, what, do, what are you hinting at there? What does that mean exactly? Well, obviously there are some, you know, problems and issues that, publishing industry has to deal with that people have been complaining about for a long time and mm -hmm. um, the fact that uh, you know they, they are being you know they are being really squeezed from above in terms of the profits they're supposed to be delivering mm -hmm. there's a lot of emphasis being put on marketing and you know certainly authors complain that editing is not um, something that publishers are devoting the kind of resources to that they should be mm -hmm. The, the fact-checking thing is sort of a new new issue in a way. I understand mm -hmm. they've never done fact-checking. Uh, were you... Uh, the, the, I'm trying to remember who you spoke to in the article. You spoke to uh, several other publishers. Uh, Dan Halpern, I think, was one of the people you talked with, and Morgan Entrican, um and some others. Do they spend any time on the fact-checking consideration, or do they talk more about the other kinds of pressures you're mentioning as being responsible for episodes like this? Well, Morgan made the point that just financially, for a lot of publishers, uh, it's really it's going to be really tough to fact-check every single book. He ran through the numbers. Mm -hmm. You know, he is an independent publisher himself. It's a very valid point. Mm -hmm. um, Dan you know, discuss some of the other things that maybe should be done that I, you know, I think people should pay attention to. And one thing he mentioned was the relationship between an author and their editor. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that's obviously a very important relationship. And the editor is, you know, the person who might, you know, detect something that's not quite right with the manuscript. And presumably they're working very closely with the author. Now, mm -hmm. uh, for a lot of authors, I, I don't think they have that kind of intimate attention from mm -hmm. their editors anymore. They feel a bit neglected and so Dan was saying that maybe that's a relationship that should be looked at again as a really key mm -hmm. one you know well does this story speak to the changing role of agents as well uh, earlier in the week James Fry's agent uh, announced that she was his former agent as a result of this episode um, but uh, I, I know there have been other stories lately about the changing roles of, of agents and, and their involvement in the crafting of of manuscripts as 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 big uh, corporate publishers are spending less time on on editing they're getting manuscripts that are that are handled um, in a more in-depth way by agents is is that part of the story well i think the agents have taken on a much more prominent role in terms of uh, you know the production of books um, you know many authors i've spoken to just working on this beat have said that you know, they've spent a lot more time working working over their prose with their agents than they mm -hmm. have uh, mm -hmm. with their editors. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, other people have said to me, I mean, I, I spoke to one agent who said that, you know, she knew of a colleague who'd been um, approached by Nazdij, the other mm -hmm. sort of literary fraud case we have to deal with, mm -hmm. and um, that that agent smelled that something wasn't quite right and quickly, you know, rejected working with that person. So... Mm -hmm. 
uh, clearly the you know the agent is the first point of contact, and um, in this case, James's agent isn't a you know was not a real New York. She's in Hollywood, as you observe. Yes, and I think she's she does a lot of film rights, works with screenwriters. Um, whether that explains what happened, I don't know. I was I was I was trying to find out who else she has represented lately, and the only other client of hers I could track down was Brooke Shields. Um, so I don't I don't know if it's unusual for her to handle uh, just a, you know a straightforward writer, or if, or if the writers she's representing are uh, are actually actors and actresses, etc. I saw some actors. I saw her selling film rights. Uh-huh. Um, but you know, although I did kind of look at her client list, I can't unfortunately recall it yeah, <laughs> right yeah, now. Too. Yeah. So. Well, I, th- I think it is notable that, though that her office is located in Hollywood and not New York. Now, what about uh, James Fry's own agent? Uh, I assume you're one of the many who tried to reach him and, and failed to get through. I'm sorry, not his agent, his, his editor on on a million little pieces originally, which was Sean McDonald. Yeah, I, I did try and contact him. Uh, you know, I wasn't ever able to interview him. I think that um, Penguin and Riverhead were probably requesting that he, you know, keep quiet until they figured out what they were going to do. Yeah. Yeah. So what do the other uh, other publishers that you spoke with say about the various representatives of James Fry, his, his editor and his, his agent? I know last week Morgan Entrican was... was publicly saying, where is the agent? Where is she? <laughs> and uh, are people also saying that about Sean McDonald now? Are they waiting for him to explain what happened here? Well, I certainly heard people say that. Yeah. You know, after watching Nan Talese, you know, sort of really take the heat on TV, everyone started to wonder why Sean hadn't come forward to mm-hmm. sort of explain what his role had been mm-hmm. and whether he had perhaps, you know, known the book was fiction at one point and you know, if he was responsible for telling Doubleday that it was a memoir, I mean, all those questions were unanswered. Now, he did, last night he did release a statement saying that uh, the book came to him as a memoir and that throughout the process of editing the book, James reassured him that everything was true. This is a publicly released statement? It was a publicly released statement. I mean, they emailed it to a few reporters, and mm-hmm. there was one piece in the Wall Street Journal you know, that sort of mentioned it, and we put it on our blog last night. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that he also finally gave an interview to New York Magazine, which had been working on a profile of him before any of this even happened. Uh, a profile that was uh, kind of giving him the star treatment, as I recall. That's what I had heard. Yeah. And um, now it's actually on New York Magazine's website, and it's, you know, it's a very, very terse sort of Q&A with the uh, Riverhead publicist listening in on the phone, and she sort of cuts off the interview. So it's oh really not very revealing. At yeah, this point. yeah. So he hasn't really done uh, any any kind of in-depth uh, discussion of this yet. No, and I suppose there are legal issues for his publishing house to mm-hmm. work out before he's really free to do that. But there. And he just uh, got a new publisher this week uh, with Jeff Kolaski coming over from Simon and Schuster. Yes. Yeah. So he's going to be inheriting this. He inherited quite a headache. Yeah. Well, Sheila, the story just goes on and on every time. You know, I thought I thought Oprah really put the nail in the coffin last week, um, and I, I imagine James Fry, uh, Fry is is feeling like he is indeed dead this week. <laughs> um, but the book is still selling in pretty pretty amazing numbers, considering everything that's gone on. Although it has fallen. 
Um, do you think the story is, is, is going to continue? Is, is uh, you know, Sean McDonald, people are still waiting to hear from him. I mean, it, this has amazing legs. How long is it going to go on? I think that's a very good question. I do sense a bit of fry fatigue out there. I think uh-huh. people are starting to, you know, want to think about something else. Yeah. Is it that, or is it that they don't want to go into a closer look at uh, at the publishing scene? Well, I'm sure that there are people in the publishing business who really just want it to go away so they can move on with mm-hmm. business as usual, and mm-hmm. certainly people did express that to me. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what, And what about continuing relationships with Oprah Winfrey? Is this... Um, was Oprah still smarting from the, the, the whole situation with, with Jonathan Franzen? Is she still angry at the book industry from that, or was this just a, a genuine bad scene that ticked her off? Well, I think Oprah's relationship with the book industry is very complicated. She's so powerful yeah. that everything she does has this incredible ripple effect, and you know, this is the second time that she's really been sort of publicly, you know, really humiliated you know, through her interaction with publishing. So, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if she were really going to be even more careful going forward. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there was even a moment uh, when she selected her next book that it seemed like there was there was a, the hint of a scandal brewing about Elie Wiesel. That seems to have been stomped out pretty quickly, thank God. But uh, uh, what do you think for the future of the Oprah Book Club? Is she going to keep taking... Uh, current current books, or is she going to go back to the classics, or is she going to drop it all together? Do you have any any hint as to that? I don't know, you know, but yeah. one thing she could do is, you know, return to uh, contemporary fiction, which is what I believe she started out doing, and yes. it's really much less, you know, problematic. Yes, well, you know, mm-hmm. Oprah was one of the people who kind of built this this intense interest in these memoirs and in, in, in books like A Million Little Pieces, and I'm I'm sure she regrets that part of her career right now, <laughs> but right, I'm sure. uh, we'll see if she does get back to fiction. Uh, Sheila, before we wrap it up, have you gotten any response uh, from your article, which appeared Wednesday here in New York? Well, I've had a lot of response from sort of all different corners, which has been very interesting, but I did actually also get a couple of emails from publishing industry people saying that uh, the article really made them think about sort of whether or not publishing was in denial about being able to continue doing business the same way. Publishing is in denial. That's, uh, that's a pretty drastic statement. I what, know. What, what, what kind of things are they, does that mean? What does it mean? Well, the idea that they really, you know, that they don't need to do anything differently with memoirs or nonfiction books in the future, that, mm-hmm. you know, this is totally James Fry's fault, that it was not the fault of anyone on the publishing side mm-hmm. it could have happened to anyone fact checking wouldn't prevent this you know that sort of digging in your heels attitude mm-hmm. uh, there's certainly you know an argument to be made for that position but it's also you know uh, it's an internet era and things are different mm-hmm. and, uh, you know might be time to reevaluate some of the old assumptions and and feeling that business can't go on the way it has been going on which is that could be saying any number of things it could be talking about the fact that business is getting a little less each year or it could be talking about the the, the kind of growing size of uh, of, the, of the publishers the, the gobbling up of, of, of imprints and things like that sure and also the fact that you know 
perhaps people need to have a debate about whether, um, you know, authors are more likely to bend the truth now, whether there's too much incentive Mm -hmm. for people to do that, and, you know, what publishers can do to sort of address that. Mm -hmm. Well, Sheila Kolhatkar of the New York Observer, you've been uh, you've been the one really looking at the publishing side of the story from the beginning. So your your views are always interesting here. Thank you for coming on the program today. Well, thanks so much, Dennis. Men, 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 men. In 2002, acting on a tip from a senior executive at one of the biggest conglomerate publishing houses in the world, Moby Lives, the blog, conducted a year-long survey of the New Yorker magazine, checking the table of contents each and every week to see how many of the contributors were women. As it turned out, the results were not encouraging. Less than a quarter of the magazine's contributors turned out to be women. In July, midway through the survey, Editor-in-Chief David Remnick was interviewed by USA Today about the survey. He promised things would get better. They didn't. On average, the contributions by women actually fell for the rest of the year. Moby Lives has decided to revisit the issue, this time checking out not just The New Yorker, but some of our other leading literary publications. The series will start this week by taking a look at the New York Review of Books. Oh boy, the 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 uh, the newest edition of the New York Review of Books is here. As you know, I get it I get it earlier than your average human being because I'm a special subscriber. This is the issue dated the February 23rd of this year. They're way ahead of the game. They're obviously at the at the at the New York Review of Books. This issue is not uh, on the on the slick uh, paper that the last one was. I guess they're no longer officially a slick. Let's see if they've uh, also improved upon the number of women making into the bylines. As you may recall, last week, three women out of 29 contributors, barely 10%. Let's see if they can improve upon that dismal rating this week. Here we are on the table of contents page. Uh, and we're going to go down. Looks like the the standard number of contributors that they usually have fifteen or sixteen people. So here we go. The first name, uh, J M Quetzi. Well, I I, I I don't have to check. I know that the J M does not stand for um, woman, but we'll continue on. Uh, look at this right here. The second name on the table of contents this week was Lawa Zimbarska, the famous poet, a woman, fifty percent so far. How about that, huh? One out of two names. Uh, is in the bylines is, is, is by a woman. They've, they've never achieved this high before. Let's continue and see if they can maintain it. The, th- the third name is, well, Thomas Powers. Uh, okay, that's a guy. Followed by, uh, well, Daniel Mendelssohn and then Ronald Dworkin and then Luke Santa. Yeah. Uh, John Banville is next. It's quite an impressive lineup of uh, uh, men. Uh, Tim Flannery is next, followed by Gordon S. Wood. Uh, William Darrymple, James Fenton, Emil Salon, J. H. Eliot. Well, I I looked the the J. H. doesn't uh, doesn't stand for woman. Christopher Benfi is next, and the last name on the table of contents this week, Charles Rosen. Oh boy, oh boy, this doesn't look good. Uh, so that's uh, one, two, three, that's fifteen. Fifteen bylines, and uh, and only one of them is 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 by a woman. Just that that one lonely poem there that uh, Lois and Parska wrote. Not even you know full scale multi page article like every like 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 the men got. 
Um, so let's see, that's one out of 15. Oh, oh my, oh my, that's gonna be, uh, let me just sketch that here for a minute. That's, uh, oh boy, that's, uh, that's less than 10%. That's about 7. 7.5% of the bylines this week in the, in, the Nash, in, in, in the New York Review of Books are, are by women. That's the lowest, lowest one so far, 7.5% of the bylines in this week's New York Review of Books are by women. Hmm. We're man and friends until the end, and none of us are sissies. At night we sleep in separate beds and blow each other kisses. And blow each other kisses. Men, men, men. It's a ship all filled with men. So throw your rubbers overboard. There's no one here but men. David Kippen is on the line. David Kippen is the new director the fairly new director of the literature program at the NEA. And before that, he was a book critic at the San Francisco Chronicle and at National Public Radio. But to most Americans, David, you're, you're better known as the very first guest ever on the first Mobiliz radio broadcast. Welcome you, back. You know, people come up to me all the time after they've overheard me speaking and say, you know, didn't I hear you on, on the first Moby radio broadcast? I don't doubt it for a minute. Well... I, I, here's what I want to talk to you about. Earlier this week, the the final nominees for the Academy Awards were announced, as everyone no doubt has heard ad infinitum now. And given your career as both a book critic and uh, uh, at one time you also reported on the film business, so I want to ask you about what is one of the, the least remarked upon, but to me most interesting categories, that of the best screenplay adaption. That means... The, the best job of turning a book into a movie, doesn't it? Well, it would be if you, if you had said adaptation. I know you were trying to. Um, <laughs> in many years, it does. In many years, uh, the five contending nominees are, in fact, uh, adaptations of books. This year um, is a little different because you could make the case that each one is a different kind of adaptation. I got the list in front of me. Mm-hmm. Brokeback Mountain is an adaptation of an Annie Proust short story. Right. Capote is an adaptation of a biography. The Constant Gardener is an adaptation of a novel. Right. A History of Violence is an adaptation of a comic book or a graphic novel. And Munich is an adaptation of a memoir. Uh, of only one book? Um, well, I think they, they mention only one book mm-hmm. in the credits. Mm-hmm. I can... I can follow my trusty but but flawed IMDB and find out exactly how they bill the adaptation. Yeah, they, they say it's uh, Tony Kushner and Eric Roth adapted from the book Vengeance, the true story of an Israeli counterterrorist team. So is, is this an unusual year in that? Well, let's look back at the previous year. <laughs> Why not? That's what this, I mean, this, this, all this software has to be good for something. Are, are you looking back at IMDB? Is well, that, shouldn't I? I mean, is that your main source? Um, well, it's, it's, the only game in town. I have mm-hmm. my beef with it, which I sounded off about in a piece for the Los Angeles Times just this past Tuesday. Um, you know, if you're at all interested in screenwriting, oftentimes, for example, you look up um, the uh, page for The Constant Gardener, and it says, um, uh, well, actually, you follow it, you follow the, the credit for Jeffrey Kane to um, his previous most prestigious movie, Goldeneye, and it tells you that one guy wrote the story. And, of course, it was adapted from characters created by Ian Fleming. Right. And then it says more, and you have to click on more before you even find out who got the actual screenplay credit. Apparently, mm-hmm. uh, apparently two screenwriters are, are the most that Google can keep in mind at one time on one page before, you know, shorting out. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so I will endeavor to get to the bottom of this, uh, this uh, 2004 question. But in the meantime, I'm probably available to answer other questions. <laughs> well, when one um, uh, adapts a movie, mm-hmm. does an adaption, or as you insist, yes. an adaptation. I'm, I'm prickly that way. Um, how does one go about getting a, a nomination for that from the Academy Awards? In other words, what are the criteria, do you think, for that award? Well, um, well, this is perfect, because I'll be able to tell you what won last year while I'm stalling and coming up with an answer for the question. Um, the, uh, the nominees last year for screenplay based on material previously produced or published, the winner was Sideways, um, which was based on an unpublished novel. Then there was Before Sunset that was based on a previous movie. Uh, the Motorcycle Diaries, which was based on Che Guevara's diaries. So yeah, I mean, I guess I guess it, this year may not be the exception. Uh, lately, filmmakers have gotten so desperate for material they're willing to look under any number of rocks and behind any amount of sofa cushions in mm-hmm. search of it, which I suppose is all to the good. Um, and now, alas, having answered your question, I'm I'm obliged to uh, your previous question. That is, I'm obliged to uh, return to uh, the one you were in fact asking, which was, as I recall. What about the um, criteria? The criteria how, how do they choose? What what makes it a good uh, adaptation? Well, I mean, strictly speaking, the criteria have changed over the years because, of course, the the name of the award has changed over the years. Mm-hmm. I was uh, I was looking into this a little bit, and you would be astonished. Um, you know, in in uh, in the year 1927, when they first started giving these things out, of course there was an award for adaptation, but I believe that was more of a treatment in those days. You would take, for example, one movie that was up in the uh, uh, first year of the Oscars was The Jazz Singer. Um, And I think what would have happened is somebody wrote uh, a treatment, um, I don't know what the source material for The Jazz Singer is, I used Mm -hmm. to, but I don't at the Mm -hmm. moment. uh, But you don't think it was a book? I I don't think it was, no, I think it was a play. I'm certain it was a play, Mm because I was looking this up. I think Mm -hmm. Samson Raphaelson, who's a distinguished screenwriter in his own right, Mm -hmm. wrote the play, or co-wrote the play, on which the jazz singer is based. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, uh, so the adaptation would have been sort of a treatment, a prose version of this play that was then adapted by... Uh, maybe even the same guy or, or more likely somebody else. Mm-hmm. But that was one of four uh, screenwriting awards that year. There was also an award for original story. Um, then there was an award for title writing, because, of course, with the exception of The Jazz Singer, these were all silent films. And then there was a special award to Charlie Chaplin for acting, writing, directing, and producing The Circus. I think mm-hmm. hyphenates were mm-hmm. perhaps a little more uncommon in those days. Mm-hmm. Uh, or they didn't have any place to put them, and yet they didn't want to piss them off. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, but, of course, it, it's changed over the years. In, in 1957, the year after Dalton Trumbo won an Oscar for original story behind uh, a pseudonym uh, for the second time, um, because? Uh, because he'd been blacklisted. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Academy said, to hell with this, and discontinued the, uh, the, the best uh, original story Oscar, sort mm-hmm. of conflated it with the best original screenplay Oscar. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think you can make the case ever since that um, the Academy has had to reward uh, two different things under one umbrella. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, movies with great scripts but mediocre stories or vice versa mm-hmm. have to compete against mm-hmm. each other. But well, what? I was going to say, let's get back to the uh, to the adaptation category for a minute, though, yes. because because you're well, stubborn, I understand. Well, also because it's it's a book show, mm-hmm. and my question is is uh, what makes um, 
what makes a, a book work as a movie? Is there something in particular, or is the award really for doing something extremely difficult, which is that books don't necessarily make a movie? They don't necessarily make a movie, and many of them, one hopes, uh, filmmakers are, are smart enough not to even try. Um, but uh, And, of course, some adaptations are um, more difficult than others. Brokeback Mountain, if you go back and read that short story, that is the most faithful adaptation mm-hmm. that Larry McMurtry and Diana Asana have written. I mean, most of the dialogue comes straight out of the story. A lot of the imagery comes come straight out of the story. I mean, it's almost stenography in the same way that, you know, once upon a time, John Huston supposedly, and this is this is how the myth goes, probably apocryphal, took home, gave gave a copy of the Maltese Falcon to his secretary over the weekend and said, change all the margins on this and bring it back Monday morning. And that was the script he shot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, do, do you think that in the case of Brokeback Mountain, uh, the McMurtry and uh, Osama, Osana, <laughs> I bet she's getting that a lot these days. I'm sorry. Um, they've written novels together. They have indeed. And uh, do you think that they that they're particularly faithful to? They wanted to to be particularly oh, faithful yeah. to mean, the original. Everything I've I've heard, and of course my own reading of the story suggests that this is uh, an incredible piece of prose that. Mm-hmm nobody in their right mind would want to tamper with any more mm-hmm. than necessary. Mm-hmm. But of course, in a lot of scripts, that's not the case. A lot of scripts have to be tinkered with to make them visual. A lot of right. them are very internal. Right. I mean, for crying out loud, somebody made us a movie. I gather not a very good movie, although a lot of people laugh out loud at it to make sure that everybody around them knows they're getting the joke, but they made a movie of Ulysses. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. As, as internal and psychological a novel as could possibly be imagined. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is an instance where it's incumbent upon the adapter not just to be a stenographer, but in fact to be more of an interpreter, mm-hmm. um, a rewriter in many cases, and, and find visual cognates for you know the character's states of mind. Well, I, uh, in, in the case of somebody like Larry McMurtry, I wonder if they, they just feel a little differently about uh, the need to to somehow pay homage even to the fact that this thing started as a literary work. I would believe that. I mean, certainly McMurtry has been on the receiving end of a bad adaptation. Mm-hmm. Um, there's mm-hmm. a very funny essay in his book Film Flam uh, about uh, getting travestied uh, with his novel Leaving Cheyenne. Mm-hmm. Sidney Lumet and uh, I forget who the adapter's name was, Shame on Me, mm-hmm. um, uh, made a movie called Love and Molly that he wasn't particularly pleased with. So, but, but you know, he's getting the last laugh now. Not only is he nominated for an Oscar, but he wrote the miniseries Lo- Lonesome Dove from his own novel, which to all accounts is, is uh, a gorgeous realization of the source material. I, I can vouch for that, having read and, and seen the film. Um, it was a it was a terrific job, but I didn't uh, remember he did that adapt- adaptation himself. Yes, and this was before he had Diana Asana to keep him company while he was pacing. Uh huh. Well, um, now a minute ago you mentioned uh, someone I want to get to, uh, but it's it's full disclosure time. Uh, one reason I wanted to talk to you was that uh, you've just released a new book on screenwriters and no, their place in Hollywood uh, uh, with Melville House. You are in fact Melville House's newest author. Your book, The Schreiber Theory, came out just this week. Um, before I, I get to the question, what exactly is The Schreiber Theory for our listeners who have yet to run down to the store and buy the book? The Schreiber Theory um, is, uh, is, is an inversion, uh, uh, an attack, you might say, on the auteur theory, which um, it suggests the directors are the principal authors of their films. This is an idea developed by a lot of French critics in the 1950s who themselves would soon become directors. Jean-Luc Godard, Eric Romer, Francois Truffaut most notably. Um, 
and it's a good theory as far as it goes, but it doesn't go very far. Um, or you could say, conversely, that it goes way the hell too far. Um, mm-hmm. I have looked at a whole lot of movies over the years, um, and I think I can demonstrate that it's a much more tenable theory to say that um, the movies are, in fact, uh, the expressions, principally, uh, collaborative medium though film is, um, of, of their writers' uh, imaginations. Even when they have multiple writers, uh, it's possible to tease out strands which belong to each writer in turn. Mm-hmm. Um, and to the extent that this is true, um, it is uh, 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 it overturns the auteur theory. And to the extent that it isn't true, if it were true, if the film industry w- were to assume that it's true the way it's assumed for the last, I don't know, 30, 40 years since the auteur theory gained some real traction, uh, uh, that, that, that it is true, um, I think I think uh, the movies the movies movies would improve if writers were regarded as creators in their own right in the same way that directors today are regarded, or if they were even allowed on the set, perhaps that might be nice. <laughs> and the word Schreiber, the Yiddish word Schreiber, meaning writer, you chose that because it's not French. Um, well, there is that to be said for it. I mean, I have nothing against the French. Uh, anyone who reader of the, the dedication of my book will know that that there are a couple of French people who mean a very great deal to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, yeah, I think I think Yiddish, having been the native tongue of uh, several of the, the great writers of the first golden age of screenwriting, um, it seemed like uh, a good, a, as good a title as any and better than most. So, so I went with that, the Schreiber theory. Now, this is, this is to get back to where we were talking about, you mentioned John Huston. Mm-hmm. In the book, you talk about him being a particularly good um, director at turning literature, all kinds of literature, into movies. Just phenomenal, yeah. Um, I mean, as, a, as the literature director of the NEA, I have I have high regard for literature directors, and he is about the best <laughs> you've ever seen. Well, he he did everything from uh, Moby Dick, yes, uh, very faithfully to with a script by Ray Bradbury, Wise Blood, um, with a script by one of by Benedict Fitzgerald, the son of the poet Robert Fitzgerald. The aforementioned uh, Maltese Falcon. Maltese Falcon, on which I believe he is the sole credited screenwriter. And then his, his well, it sounds like he just took the novel, so maybe he wasn't actually the screenwriter. Well, I mean, he had, well, now an auteur would say, an, an auteurist would say of a director, well, he had sense enough to leave well enough alone. Mm-hmm. And this is, I think you could make the same case with Houston. He recognized that Dashiell Hammett had a great cinematic genius and, and didn't tinker with it. And, and, Houston's last novel, uh, or last novel, <laughs> um, his last movie, mm-hmm. was James Joyce's The Dead, the great short story by James Joyce. Yes, I know um, that's a favorite of yours. And again, amazingly faithful. Uh, you know, so many people that love a book and then go see the movie are always disappointed, it seems. But I never have been with Houston. Even with something like Moby Dick, he figures out how to wrestle the the heart of the book in, in, into the movie. What do you think is, is the trick? What is he doing that's so different? Well, I was researching this today, and I came across one fact I'd never have guessed, which is that, um, I mean, I knew that he did a lot of his own adaptations. He was a screenwriter, I think, even before he was a director. But he kept doing it. He didn't like so many uh, screenwriters who become directors all of a sudden become too you know, too highfalutin to bother with their screenwriting chores and delegate them to somebody else. This is a man who, let me just confirm this, was nominated for eight screenwriting awards mm-hmm. and won one for um, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, let me call this up. Um, yes, the uh, the most 
nominations of anyone in the history of, uh, of screenwriting, either original or adaptation. Uh, Woody Allen with 13, Billy Wilder with 12, Federico Fellini, another person people think of as a pure director, mm -hmm. with eight, and Houston uh, in a tie with eight. Um, that's, that little list says something else, I think, about the importance of, of, of writing to quality filmmaking. It's yeah, come to think of it, I mean, Feder Fellini was the one who surprised me because... Um, you know, uh, we don't think of, of uh, you know, we don't think of him as a writer. But I just skipped right over Woody Allen and Billy Wilder, mm -hmm. who are themselves mm -hmm. writer directors. Mm -hmm. Yes, the the four most nominated screenwriters in Oscar history are writer directors. And of course, no one but a fool or or an auteurist would suggest <laughs> that um, uh, uh, somehow a director has a, a greater influence over uh, uh, over you know uh, the films that he makes has a greater claim to authorship than a writer director mm -hmm. um, and I think this very statistic suggests that of course writing is an integral part if not the integral part mm -hmm. of, of the entire filmmaking enterprise well let's go back to John Houston for a minute because he really seemed to have the knack um, yes. for, for those who love the book and are always nervous when 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 a film is going to be made from a book you love he really seemed to have the knack, and one thing you observe in the Schreiber theory is that he seemed to favor shorter books, short novels and novellas. Yes, he did. Um, uh, Wise Blood certainly comes to mind. Um, there are uh, there are certainly others. Um, the Dead. The Dead, of course. And the the Hammett novel was very short. Oh yeah, you can read you can read uh, the Maltese Falcon in a sitting unless your eyes are starting to go. Like you, uh, <laughs> those of us who who spent the last seven years reviewing books are at risk of having them do. Um, but uh, yeah, very definitely, I, I I would argue, and I think Houston uh, would. I'd say presumptuously agree with me that novellas make the best movies and it's not just the best John Huston movies I mean look at Apocalypse Now made from Heart of Darkness mm -hmm. uh, used to have a list as long as your arm I ought to, I ought to, I ought to pull that out of the drawer because um, yeah it's very definitely true you know what somebody ought to start a whole series of novellas because they're hard to market so oftentimes <laughs> major publishers <laughs> don't really pay them sufficient attention but um, I think it would be David, a terrific series of David, right? would make great material for prospective filmmakers th thank you thank you David you, you, you might want to check out your publisher's website sometime my publisher's website below your book you'll notice there's a wonderful novella series but thank you very much for the plug <laughs> But it, it's a very interesting point that uh, there's some affinity between the form of the short novel or the novella and film. Something about the just the length of the narrative well, of or the number of the characters. Short story off all too often, you know, you're looking at an episode, an mm -hmm. anecdote, mm -hmm. um, and and you, you sort of have to inflate it. A novella, I think, is perfect. You take 90 or 100 pages and, um, you know, you're, you're pretty much in business. Which, which brings us back to one of the big movies of the year, Brokeback Mountain, Broke which Back was uh, a long short story. As I, re I haven't read it, but I, I think that's what it was, right? It wasn't a novel. Um, no, no. It's, it's about a 30-page short story. ran in the New Yorker originally mm -hmm. and, um, and uh, you know, appears in her collection uh, close range or at, at close range. Mm -hmm. um, no, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's far short of being a novella. Mm -hmm. um, but what uh, McMurtry and Asana have done is is you know they've they've basically taken every sentence mm -hmm. and found mm -hmm. either a visual equivalent for it or if it's some of Prue's you know wonderful dialogue they've mm -hmm. left well enough alone it's mm -hmm. it's the most scrupulously faithful adaptation um, other than you know the Maltese Falcon mm -hmm. uh, that that I may have ever seen. Who do you, is it is it that different a skill or does a good 
original screenplay writer also make a good uh, uh, adaptation of a book? Um, I think there is there is significant crossover over the years. People have done both, but what's happening lately, and I find this really dismaying, is you know there's really not much percentage in writing an original screenplay anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, what you have um, is you know everybody wants some sort of pre-sold material. I mean, look at the career of a guy named Steve Cloves. Steve Cloves is the guy who wrote the fabulous Baker Boys. He wrote a movie called Flesh and Bone. He wrote all these wonderful original screenplays. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what does he do? Um, you know, he, they, they become harder and harder to sell because they're not based on something that people already know. They're not a remake. They're not a sequel. Um, and, you know, presumably he's got, you know, kids who need braces. So he signs a contract to adapt not one but all seven Harry Potter movies. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen any of them. I gather they're pretty good mm-hmm. um, or at least well adapted before, you know, a hack director like Chris Columbus gets his hands on them. <laughs> but, um but, I mean, is this how Steve Klobes ought to be spending 10 years of his life? Mm-hmm. I mean, I did just notice that he's been signed to write and direct. He also directed uh, Fabulous Baker Boys. Mm-hmm. He's been signed to write, um, uh, and he wrote uh, Wonder Boys, which mm-hmm. is a terrific adaptation mm-hmm. that, uh, that Curtis Hansen directed. Um, but now he's been signed to adapt and direct the, the curious incident of The Dog in the Nighttime. as a very successful novel a couple of years ago by Mark Haddon about uh, an autistic detective. Um, but, I mean, the fact remains, he's still not writing original screenplays. Right. Um, and adaptation, you know, while it's, uh, uh, you know, a tremendously difficult and challenging field, there's no substitute for actually making up a story out of whole cloth mm-hmm. and, and, you know, create, you know and, and, and turning it into a movie. And, and it just, you know, that doesn't appear to be a marketable skill anymore in Hollywood. Well, who else do you think is, uh, is doing a particularly good job of it at the moment? Well, let's take a look here. Um, I would say, here we go. Um, well, the one guy who's writing original screenplays is Charlie Kaufman. Mm-hmm. Um, although even he wrote an adaptation, right. a meta-adaptation right. of the book by Susan Orlean adaptation, but it's, of course, the most unorthodox and unfaithful adaptation you could ever possibly look at. Mm-hmm. Um, as for adaptations themselves... Um, I would say this guy named Brian Helgeland, mm-hmm. uh, who adapted Mystic River, who uh, adapted with the director, Curtis Hansen, L.A. Confidential, mm-hmm. which is a wonderful adaptation. I haven't read that novel by James Elroy myself, but on the basis of his other work, which I don't really think very much of, um, I, I, I think it must have been an amazing salvage job. Mm-hmm. Um, who else is rather talented in this field? Well, Bill Condon, mm-hmm. um, the guy who adapted Chicago, which was a famously difficult adaptation that had stumped any number of talented writers, also did Gods and Monsters, which he directed, mm-hmm. also did, um, oh, the other one is slipping my mind, but, oh, um, uh, um, Kinsey. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, he's doing too much directing lately, and, of course, what happens when a writer becomes a director if, you know, he doesn't, you know, uh, die of encouragement the way uh, as someone once said of, of uh, uh, the economy in Hollywood um, you know maybe he'll keep right maybe he'll keep uh, directing but he'll also only you know make a picture every five years instead of you know, screenwriting pure screenwriting which allows you to be more prolific did this year's Academy Award nominees for the category of adaptation show off some of the the better uh, writers or no um, let me is it, is it an unusual group um, besides McMurtry? Well, besides McMurtry and Asana, you've got 
Well, you've got uh, Dan Futterman for Capote, who was himself an actor uh, mm-hmm. for, for quite a while. And this is sort of an interesting phenomenon. You see him nominated. You see George Clooney nominated, who is, of mm-hmm. course, also an actor. Mm-hmm. Woody Allen, who's kind of a perennial actor-writer nominee. And there was another one who looked as if he might get nominated but didn't. I'm, who it is, is is slipping my mind for the moment. And this is starting to make me think that while these are fairly good scripts, could it also be the importance in Hollywood of the pitch process mm-hmm. in which a writer has to become an actor and tell the story to an executive before he ever gets a green light? Maybe this favors disproportionately actors, writers who are already actors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've got the script from Munich by Tony Kushner and Eric Roth, um, which might just win, if only because Hollywood has a tendency to feel flattered when a playwright of the enormous gifts of Tony Kushner deigns to write a script for them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a, it's a it's kind of like the old days in Hollywood. Well, yes. Now, in the old days, you know, you had you had playwrights fleeing New York in droves in the late twenties and early thirties, because of course. Uh, sound had come in, and they needed uh, desperately mm-hmm. for uh, you know somebody to write all that dialogue. Uh, I mean, between uh, playwrights and journalists, you basically had the entire talent pool of the first great golden age of screenwriting in the 1930s. Followed up by a, a lot of leading novels and uh, novelists in the 30s and 40s. Um, Hemingway and Faulkner and Fitzgerald were all Hemingway there. didn't really write any scripts. He was the one who said the way to deal with Hollywood for a novelist is to go to the uh, east bank of the Mississippi River, throw your book over, and then wait for them to uh, throw the bag of money back <laughs> over from the west side. Although I think I've got the order wrong. He wanted the money first before he... Probably, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, But Faulkner came out and got his name onto a couple of good Howard Hawks scripts. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe The Big Sleep was something he shared credit on with Lee Brackett. Mm-hmm. Uh, and who was the other one you mentioned? Uh, well, Fitzgerald earlier, famously. Yeah, Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald never quite got the knack of screenwriting, but unlike so many novelists who, who can't quite master it, um, he wasn't bitter. He didn't disparage it. He knew there was a, a skill there, one that mm-hmm. he didn't have, mm-hmm. but thankfully he had, uh, he had another skill, which was uh, maybe not quite as lucrative. But uh, no, he did a different sort of prostitution. <laughs> he would put aside his novels to write short stories, right. then uh, with what? magazines like Collier's and Oh, Esquire, I suppose, you could make a living at. Nowadays, right. with so right. far fewer venues, you really can't. Well, so to conclude our discussion, oh, David, no, already, who, okay. who are you calling now for the award? For the award, let me take a look here. It um, sounded like you thought the... Well, I, uh, I thought Munich was a possibility. Right. Um, I think Brokeback Mountain could get caught up in uh, a, a Brokeback Mountain juggernaut. I mean, what happens when a movie starts winning awards hand over fist right. um, is you get the idea that all the uh, the members of the Academy electorate were sort of filling out their ballots, and you know, once you get past the topmost categories, which of course, according to me, should include writing, but you know, the way the ballot is arranged and the way the telecast is arranged, writing sort of enjoys second-class citizenship somewhere down in the pack. Well, by the time they get down there. Uh, maybe maybe they've gotten you know they've gotten tired of, of checking you know they, they've gotten into the habit of checking Brokeback Mountain whatever the category is um, so I would say it, it, history of violence doesn't doesn't have a chance history of violence is only in there well first of all because it's a good script or, or it wouldn't have been you know a contender even but it's mm. in there because Syriana was at the last minute knocked out of the adaptation category and into the original category because somebody went back and saw how very loosely adapted from that nonfiction book it was. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so you can rule that out. Um, Capote, I think, is is a long shot in this category. He's a first-time screenwriter, and it's pretty much thought to be, rightly or wrongly, Philip Seymour Hoffman's uh, tour de force and not the screenwriter's. Mm-hmm. Um, so from, let's see, 
Uh, I think you can pretty much knock it down to Brokeback Mountain, The Constant Gardener, which I wouldn't mind seeing at all, especially since the director keeps going around saying, well, this was a great scene we improvised. Well, that was a great scene we improvised. <laughs> I'd like to hear what Jeffrey Kane says about the scenes that were improvised. Uh-huh. Um, and Munich. Um, and if you, if you twisted my arm, I think I would probably guess that Brokeback Mountain might come away with it. Well, we'll know shortly. We'll know you'll, you'll, you'll take this down off the website if I'm wrong, won't you? Uh, absolutely. We'll take it down and re-record that, uh, that final call. I am available for dubbing. We'll, we'll do. I'll remember that. I've got your number. David Kippen, the author of The Schreiber Theory, a radical rewrite of American film history, and the director of literature at the National Endowment for the Arts. Everybody wants to direct. <laughs> Apparently, and now you do. Thanks for coming on Mobiliz Radio again. Delighted. And that's our show for this week. Thanks to our guests, Sheila Kolhatkar of the New York Observer and David Kippen of the uh, federal government, well, also of Melville House lately. And by the way, his book again is called The Schreiber Theory, a radical rewrite of American film history. Thanks to our engineer, Andrew Steinmetz, and also to the folks here at Melville House, Kelly Burdick, Becky Kramer, and, of course, publisher Valerie Marians. We'll be back next week. We hope you will, too. Until then, don't forget.
Thank you.